0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: While The Gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. Thursday, August 18th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President John F. Kennedy wrote and by association aspired to be a profile in courage. Harry Truman gave him hell. Andrew Jackson's toughness was embodied in the sobriquet old hickory. Donald Trump has a title of his own. This man surely is the troller-in-chief. No other president ever even sought to earn that nickname. That's how much of a visionary Donald Trump is. Trump's latest troll, and I honestly do have to hand it to him, it is a fine, fine troll. It concerns the New York 10th Congressional District. Five pretty strong candidates are running, and the recent frontrunner, buoyed by an endorsement from the New York Times, is Dan Goldman. If you who don't live in Brooklyn's 10th recognize the name, it's because Goldman was the impeachment manager of Trump's first impeachment. Here he is finishing up the list of Trump's misdeeds that led us to that point. President Trump's conduct sought to undermine our free and fair elections and poses an imminent threat to our national security. And fourth, faced with the revelation of his pressure campaign against Ukraine, President Trump directed an unprecedented effort to obstruct Congress's impeachment inquiry into his conduct. Donald Trump was peeved. So yesterday, less than a week before the primary that will determine the Democratic nominee and therefore the next member of Congress in this overwhelmingly Democratic district, Donald Trump intervened with a tweet, an endorsement, quote, lawyer Dan, I'm not going to do the voice because people hate it when I do the voice, but I just wanted to give a syllable or two with a voice. Lawyer Dan Goldman is running for Congress, NY10, and it is my great honor to strongly endorse him, both capitalized, of course. I do this not because of the fact that he headed up the impeachment committee, both capitalized, and lost, but because he was honorable, fair, and highly intelligent, non-capitalized. While it was my honor to beat him and beat him badly, Dan Goldman has a wonderful future ahead. Trump also issued a sarcastic and possibly caustic endorsement of Carolyn Maloney in her race. But the Goldman endorsement proved to be a headache for Goldman, which was exactly Trump's plan. It was a prominent topic of last night's debate, the last debate before the primary. Just on background for our viewers, former President Trump moments ago putting out on his platform Truth Social that he's endorsed a number of Democrats here in New York City, including you, Mr. Goldman. So why do you think that is and do you accept the endorsement? What's the opposite of accept? Reject with prejudice? Run screaming away from? Mr. Mongoose, do you accept the endorsement of the snake lobby? Here was Goldman during the debate. We should know enough by now to know that we can't take Donald Trump at his word and that he likes to meddle in elections. Last week he attacked me. Now he's pretending to endorse me to try to meddle in this election. The fact that my opponent seems to actually take him seriously just shows how little he knows Donald Trump. The rival Goldman spoke of, current congressman, though not of this district, Mondaire Jones, was intent on taking Trump at his word for perhaps the first time ever. Not an out-of-touch millionaire who supports abortion restrictions, opposes Medicare for All, and was just endorsed by Donald Trump. Trump got exactly what he wanted. Even if Goldman wins, which is far from certain, Trump definitely made the guy sweat. I would say Trump made Goldman more uncertain of an upcoming vote than Goldman ever made Trump touche to the troller-in-chief. As far as the question of the ethics of Elevating Donald Trump's message for their own gains—it's politics, baby. Who's going to turn down Mana from heaven or maybe Caca from hell? Either way, Mondaire Jones—you can't expect the guy not to use it to his advantage. But. I would say that Jones or the other candidates who cited the endorsement and pretended it was real, yuli New, Carolina Rivera, they tweeted out condemnations of Goldman for earning Trump's endorsement, thereby taking Trump literally and advancing his agenda. I would say all those people are precluded from now ever criticizing anyone else for platforming or amplifying Donald Trump. And maybe they will show themselves to be hypocrites On that score but it will really only matter to us and probably to them if they do so as a member of congress in the first place on the show today cdc communication reform we can all agree it's pretty simple and straightforward Ah! that was me falling over something that was supposed to be straightforward the cartoon version of the gist for a premium price. this It will delight you and the young ones. But first, Canada has a not insignificant gun problem, but unlike in the U.S., Canada's problem is in large part U.S. guns heading north into the country. Back in May, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Bill C-21, which he hopes will combat the problem. And tomorrow, a temporary freeze on the legal importation of restricted handguns goes into effect, while Canadian Parliament debates the proposed law. Up next, I talk with the University of Toronto's Ju Young Lee, an expert who says the law won't do enough so long as the U.S. spigot is turned all the way up.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it
1: The country of Canada has really high gun ownership rates among OECD, those are the most developed countries, fifth. Among all the nations in the world with a population over 10 million, only the U.S. and Yemen rank higher in terms of gun violence rates. But the thing is, the U.S. ranks so much higher in terms of uh, overall deaths from guns. Canada is troubled by this issue, the CBC runs documentaries on it, it's a big issue when it comes to elections, and yet the new, the US could never even dream of approaching these relatively high Canadian levels of gun violence. The US's safest cities are still less safe than Canada as a whole. Someone who's been studying these issues from both our perspectives is Ju Young Lee, Associate Professor of Sociology and faculty member at the Center for the Study of the United States at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. He gets it. He gets us both. He is, in fact, I can reveal this. He is, in fact, a Californian by birth. Professor Lee, welcome to the gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. So first of all, could you just update us on where... Prime Minister Trudeau's plan to limit or ban handgun sales and buy back military style weapons. Where does that stand?
2: Well, the most recent announcement, um, I guess it was about a couple of weeks ago now, was that um, he he was going to freeze the handgun market in Canada. And, um, you know, Bill C-21 in its new form was going to also contain other provisions, one of which was to increase sentencing for traffickers of firearms from the U.S. because most of the guns that are, are being used in shootings here are are from the United States originally. And then I think the, the provision also include, or the bill also included some, some language about red flag laws and legislation where persons who are suspected of potentially plotting to use guns to harm others or themselves Um, there would be some mechanism in place to to take their guns Um, that that part was a bit vague but i think the the idea is that this bill is going to freeze the market um, which has a lot of people frankly scratching their heads
1: because they don't know what that means or what the effect will be
2: Yeah, mostly because of the effects, Um, you know, a lot of us who study gun violence, both in the U.S. and Canada, have been saying for so long that the limited amount of data that we have whenever the police here in Canada submit their firearms to a trace, which is typically done by a part of the ATF in the U S when, when they submit these guns to traces somewhere in the ballpark of 70 to 80% of the guns confiscated at crime scenes are originating in the U S and you know, there's research that shows that, uh, there are certain States that are kind of habitual or more routine offenders in terms of, of, of providing these firearms places like Florida or some other States as well yeah. that are supplying these guns. So That's why a lot of people are scratching their heads. Most of the guns in our data says that they're coming from the U.S., and yet the bill is going to freeze the Canadian market around handguns.
1: Right. So the guns, is it mostly the case that the guns are being taken from crime scenes are contraband because those are the only guns that criminals or people with convictions can access? Whereas a Canadian with a clean record, there is a process. It's not super easy like the United States, but they can access uh, handguns legally.
2: Exactly. Yeah. uh, The the market or the, the process here in Canada is much harder. It's more stringent. There's, um, you know, you have to go through a background check. You have to have people write what is sort of like a letter of recommendation for you um, that basically speaks to your, you know, kind of character and your mental wellness. You have to take a, a, a training course, basic safety training, and you have to get a license that's renewable every five years. So th- there are lots of these little steps and there's a waiting period In the u.s it's an instant background check you know when you go to a federally licensed dealer if you don't have uh, a felony conviction or you haven't been hospitalized against your will or you haven't been dishonorably discharged um, you can buy a gun that day sometimes five to ten minutes later just the length of time to go through that check and the private market in the U.S. is uh, it can be very unregulated, where you don't have to go through that background check. So yeah, it's a it's a workaround. The U.S. market is a lot easier. People who want to commit crimes here realize you can get the guns easier there, and they can be sold at a markup here because it's
1: a lot harder. But the Canadian background check system, it doesn't really dissuade people from buying guns, does it? Uh, As I don't know if I quoted this exact statistic, but I've seen something approaching a quarter of all Canadian homes have a gun. And the uh, equivalent statistic, what percentage of U.S. adults own guns, Um, There is an accurate statistic that we have more guns than people, maybe 400 million guns, but there are many people or some gun owners own many, many guns, whereas Gallup polling indicates 44% in the most recent survey of US adults say they personally own a gun. So if you extrapolate that throughout households, it's probably twice the ownership rate of Canada, and yet the United States has five or six times, eh, five times the homicide rate rate, including murders and suicides of Canada.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's you, you point to a really interesting phenomenon. Um, we have these kind of like big scale surveys that show how many guns roughly estimated are in circulation. But, you know, they don't always break down in a good amount of detail how many guns per owner or household. And the different news outlets have been running these interesting stories in, in recent kind of times of people who are like super owners, where they have like mm-hmm. a, a crazy cache of firearms as if they're preparing for, you know, the the apocalypse. Um, so that's definitely a, a a thing also in the U.S. that kind of skews those numbers upwards.
1: Yeah. Now, the recent impetus of this Head scratching, perhaps handgun proposal wasn't something that happened in Canada, right? It was the same mass shootings, Buffalo and Uvalde, that have so um, anguished the United States. Canada not only maybe traffics the U.S.'s guns, but also its anguish.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think I mean the announcement of these, of this this kind of revamped Bill C twenty one came on the heels of those two, you know, horrific, tragic mass shootings. I don't know. I'm I'm not somebody who's partisan by any means. Um, I'm very much guided by data and the social science. And when I heard about this announcement, um, I was just a little bit puzzled because I felt like this was another big news item from the prime minister that kind of made it seem like he was doing something. But then when you actually look at the data, it doesn't really appear that the levers he's proposing as part of Bill C-21 are gonna accomplish that. You know, there's so many people who have been working on the ground in communities that are hit hardest by gun violence across Canada. You know, community-based organizations who are saying, we need help, we need, we need funding, we need support to kind of stay afloat, to continue helping at-risk people. Um, and that seems like an afterthought always in, 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 in this announcement in particular.
1: Is there any appreciable gun lobby in Canada?
2: Not, I mean, I think there are definitely groups here that are kind of appropriating the language of rights, guns being rights for Canadians, which, um, you know, again, I'm not like a legal scholar and I'm also, you know, somebody who was born and raised in the U.S. But um, from what my understanding, the guns are not a legal right here in the same way that the constitution sets it out in the U.S., um, but there are some, you know, groups that are starting to kind of adopt some of that language about guns being a Canadian right. Um, you know, the, the the system here I think is great because it's, it's it sets guns up to be a privilege, much like having a driver's license. Like you have to follow these rules. You have to show a basic level of competency. It's a renewable license, you know, so I think that's a better way. I think this kind of like appropriating the language of the NRA of guns being a right is the wrong move for Canada because Canada is doing a much better job regulating the flow of guns than the US.
1: Yeah. So, no Second Amendment, no appreciable gun lobby. What about just the relationship of, because what I'm trying to do is figure out why the difference is, mm-hmm. the relationship between Canadians and each other? Uh, there's definitely, it definitely goes back to, uh, history of slavery in the United States versus, but I don't want to say totally not that. Mm. I know Canadians have long told themselves there was no slavery in Canada, but there were vestiges of that. But you compare the two—is it that Canadians are just less suspicious and, in fact, less violent uh in their in their attitudes towards each other than Americans are?
2: Mm, that's the big existential question. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, to be honest, I've I've lived here for a decade and there's a part of me that wants to say yes that's probably true um but i think it might depend on who you talk to i mean there are also people who are you know we're still in the midst of this uh, reconciliation process for indigenous children who you know they're finding these mass graves everywhere i don't know i mean the canada is definitely less violent per capita than the u.s but you know i i i don't know if i could make such a grand statement
1: Right. Well, it does seem that Canada hasn't gotten to the level where many places in the U.S. have gotten to where there is a loop of high crime prompts, the perception of the necessity of self-defense, which causes more crime and more violence. So far, Canada has seemed to avoid that dynamic.
2: I think one thing I've noticed, and this is just a hypothesis, um, I'm sure there are people studying this here. I don't know of the research, but I think in general, if you were to survey Canadians and Americans on their attitudes towards police, I would, my sense is that Canadians in general, again, would be more trusting of law enforcement and police as institutions. Um, I think the U.S., um, that's one of the unique drivers of firearm ownership. A lot of times we talk about the second amendment and like the, we, there's this kind of image of a gun crazed hoarder that comes mm-hmm. up. But I think a lot of people who are are turning to firearms are also buying them because they don't trust the police and they don't think that the police will help them in a time of crisis. And so they, they want to take matters into their own hands, um, so to speak. So I think I, I that's just a hypothesis though I think Canadians in general would be more trusting of police than Americans
1: that is true, and I sometimes read in the Toronto Star they do big uh, packages about police involved, what we would call police involved shootings. Mm -hmm. So it's not unknown, but part of the dynamic is what the police always say is in every interaction, there's the reasonable expectation that the person they're interacting with is going to have a gun. So just the sheer amount of guns. Also, if you want to talk about, you know, vicious cycles, the sheer amount of guns probably prompts some police, uh, certainly prompts some police overreaction, which prompts (laughs) the necessity to have more guns exactly or the perceived necessity yeah
2: yeah and it also prompts the the underreaction as well and that was one of that's one of the critiques that are kind of coming out in the wake in the post-mortem of uvalde that the police were there even in the school and kind of waited outside and you know i think uh, you know i've spoken to a lot of police officers in philadelphia where i did my field work prior to moving to canada and it gave me a very different perspective of policing. You know, I, I I learned, I heard stories of officers who were responding to just routine things and, you know, saw people get shot and killed in front of them, um, had partners shot and killed. And, you know, I think, yeah, the, the, the presence of these firearms also means that police work in the U.S., on average, is probably more dangerous than it is in a place like Canada. So it can lead to that, you know, inaction as well.
1: Yeah. Maybe it is just the case that if you don't allow gun violence to get to a certain point, you have so many more options in how to deal with gun violence and maybe so many places in the u.s are just past that point where people are going to feel the need to be armed police are going to have the perception that everyone is armed then everyone will be armed Mm. and you know without lowering the temperature and the actual facts of killing there's really nothing nothing you could do after it's gotten out of hand maybe that's the case
2: yeah i think i think that's a really interesting uh way to think about it um I think the other thing, and you mentioned this earlier, is the fact that there are so many guns out there. There's just 400 million, is like one estimate, um, and there's no coming back from that really. Like it's it's sort it's of sad. like a Pandora's box. Like that that ship has sailed. So there are all these guns out there. A lot of people who shouldn't have them have them. They're easy to get. They can cross state lines. They can you know do whatever. And so now it's, the US has a very difficult position. Like how do you now try to mitigate, you know, this from getting worse and worse? And I I don't know the answer. I think we're all still trying to figure out what to do next.
1: So as an American who moved to Canada, but now literally studies America from Canada, is there anything (laughs) that being immersed in that culture gave you an insight to as to america's policies character attitudes towards gun violence
2: i don't know if this is just uniquely american but it is something that kind of fits into this like overall ideology of like pulling yourself up or by the bootstraps or that you as an individual are kind of like responsible for your fate you know like people use the word neoliberalism Mm -hmm. um to describe this, this ethos of this individual, that, that comes out a lot in the aftermath of shootings. And the kinds of shootings that I write about um, historically or primarily have been about non-fatal shootings, uh, which are the mo- most shootings are non-fatal. Right. And there's this belief that the people who get shot and who live in cities across the US are gang members or drug dealers or doing something to get themselves in trouble. But when you spend time with victims in hospitals and learn about their their stories, talk to their families, and you get to kind of know who these people are behind this, the statistics, you realize how problematic and inaccurate this idea is. You know, sometimes bad things just happen and it's, it's, a, it's connected to the context that you're in and the, you have no control over it. Like there are people who I met in Philly who... We're at a stoplight and a stray bullet from a fight, you know, went through the trunk of their car and hit their back, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of these kinds of things that are missed when we assume that everyone's sort of like cultivating their own fate and that everyone's responsible for their own like story.
1: Ju Young Lee is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. He is also a senior fellow in the Yale University Urban Ethnography Project and an international scholar at the Penn Injury Science Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He is writing a book about the victims of gun violence who survived in Philadelphia. Thank you so much, Professor Lee.
2: Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: And now the spiel. The head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, is admitting mistakes in cleaning house. Maybe not a deep clean, just wiping the surfaces. We're told that's really important, right? But in a message to the agency's roughly 11,000 employees, Walensky admitted, quote, to be frank, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. As a result, here are some of the bullet points put forward toward reform. Bing! His bullet point sound effect. Share scientific findings and data faster. Bing! Do a better job of translating science into practical, easy-to-understand policy. Ding! Prioritize public health communications. Ooga. Trying something new there. De-emphasize publication of scientific findings for career promotion. Wah, wah, wah! New training for agency staff so that multiple people can fill the same role in public health emergencies. Okay. Like you, I was mostly downstream of most of these decisions. And like you, I agree that the effect of what Walensky calls public guidance during the coronavirus pandemic was often, quote, confusing and overwhelming. Walensky will get no dissent on that score from CNN's John Berman, here attempting to communicate to viewers what was then the best practices set forth by the CDC. The CDC now says that people who test positive should self-isolate for at least five days, and those who want to take a test during that time should do so toward the end of those five days. If that test come po- comes back positive, but only if you chose to take it, right? Optional. Then the person should continue to isolate for a total of 10 days. The guidance stopped short of calling for everyone to get tested before leaving isolation. If I did a bad job explaining what the guidance is, it's not my fault. Trust me. That was a national directive. Things didn't play out especially smoothly on the local level.
0: The Milwaukee Health Department says that the city is back in the high COVID transmission category due to COVID cases climbing over the past week.
1: Meanwhile, the CDC still considers Milwaukee County to have a low level of community spread. I think we can all agree that CDC communication was often poor, but what we can't agree on is what good communication would look and sound like. This was a novel coronavirus, and you can't communicate better than you understand As our knowledge of the virus and the spread changed, so did our communication. Plus, we are a nation of 330 million with 50 states and leaders reacting differently to different incentives. Coordination of message between the CDC and Gavin Newsom is necessarily going to look different from coordination of message between the CDC and Ron DeSantis. Now, it would be really easy, maybe comforting, to say, well, that's because Gavin Newsom was right and Ron DeSantis was wrong. But that is not accurate. Not always, not totally, not 100%. Uh, Some people would say not often. When Newsom was warning people off of beaches in accordance with CDC policy. DeSantis was allowing it, even though there was ample information that outdoor risk was minimal. You might argue that, oh, we were in the early stages of the pandemic then. We didn't know how minimal the risk was. But the calculation... Between the risk of shutdown versus the benefits of openness, that's as much a political decision as an epidemiological one. And the people of Florida elected DeSantis to make those kinds of decisions in their interests. Even today, if we could all give the CDC a communications grade, nationally, I would guess it would get a D. Okay, so who gets an A? For a time, it looked like Andrew Cuomo, no more. Maybe it's Colorado Governor Jared Polis. But major constituencies right now would say that the CDC should have communicated more caution, and plenty of people would advocate that the CDC was overcautious. And there's a whole bunch who would still say they did what was best from what they knew at the time. You're going to have to be able to go back and point to a time when guidance was clearly mistaken for reasons that the communicators should have known about at the time. I don't see how you could blame the communication otherwise. You know who's a great communicator on the world stage today? Vladimir Zelensky. You know why? Why? because he's a trained performer, 90% it's that his message is extremely straightforward and never stops being straightforward. We will oppose and repel the Russians at every turn. Help us. Rudy Giuliani after 9-11 was a good communicator, slightly different from eternal resilience a la Zelensky. Giuliani added a dash of humanity and uplift. But at that point for him, it was a static situation. He wasn't in charge of chasing Al-Qaeda. He was in charge of vowing that a city would return and helping it heal. He did that well, but the facts on the ground didn't keep changing day after day. You know who were bad communicators? The generals during the Vietnam War. You know why? The situation was an ever-shifting morass. COVID was more like Vietnam than 9-11. Some of the criticism of the CDC being confusing, was really just criticism of the CDC being actually pretty easy to understand, just that we don't agree with the policies. Take this from PBS at the time. The CDC said if you get COVID, you don't have to isolate for 10 days. Like before, you can cut that down to five. But it also said people don't need a negative test to resume regular life. Joining a chorus of criticism, the American Medical Association issued a rare but strong rebuke, saying that the CDC's new recommendations were, quote, not only confusing, but are risking further spread of the virus. That was aired on January of 2022. By the end of that month, COVID deaths would reach their high of the year and then come down dramatically. Was the CDC right and the American Medical Association wrong? Well, if the criteria is we need to take every possible precaution to save every possible life, the AMA was right. If the criteria is we need to concoct a policy that weighs some acceptable risks with the need for people to return to their lives. Then the CDC policy was right, and the CDC policy articulated that pretty effectively. Rochelle Walensky herself, prior to the summer of 2021, said her son loved summer camp, but she wouldn't be sending him without wearing a mask. That was clear. I understood the communication. It was also, I think, wrong. It was at least wrong to me and my ears and the uh, 90% of mostly vaccine-endorsing blue state parents who sent their kids to the same non-mask-requiring summer camp that my kids go to. But I have members of my family who wouldn't send their kids to camp at all during the summer of 2021. And so to them, Walensky's guidance might have seemed wrong to even endorse a masked camp experience. Was it communication or the policy we can't agree on? There's no message that serves as a vaccine for confusion and disagreement. Of course, with this virus, there is a vaccine that's a vaccine for serious illness, and plenty of people still aren't taking that. Right now, the vaccinations are undoubtedly a lot more effective than the communication. That happens to be a contrast with the latest contagion, monkeypox, where the messaging isn't great, but the vaccine distribution's a lot worse. And that should be the CDC's primary overhaul. If you improve the response, the things you say about the response will go down much easier. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of messaging for PFP. What she came up with is this. Stop, then drop, then roll, then run, then tell. Where's the beef? Still a work in progress. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperu Peru Peru. And thanks for listening.
2: Hey, where's the beef?